Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, C4 Church. It's a real joy to be here with you today, and uh, I'm glad to be able to bring God's Word to you. Shout out to North Durham as well, and a privilege to be preaching there this morning uh, with you. I don't know how you feel about the routine of life. But most of us wake up every morning to get ready to go to work, to come home, to get the kids ready for some activity, to then spend some time on some electronic device, to go back to bed, to get up and do the whole thing over again. And occasionally in there, we get a hobby or a vacation, right? We get to go away for a little while or we have some hobby we like. And that's just kind of what we do. And then when you dream, what do you dream about? Maybe you dream about a kitchen renovation. Maybe you dream about a new washer or dryer. Maybe you dream about a new truck or boat. I don't know what you dream about, but you dream about this new laptop, a new iPad. And that's what you plan for. Lots of research on it, lots of time spent. That's what you do. I met this young man, Colton, last year at Fair Havens when I was speaking there. And when I met Colton at Fair Havens... Uh, I'd just done a talk about the gospel. A number of young men and women had come to faith in Christ or recommitted their lives to Christ. And as I walked outside, he was just kind of standing there. 17 years old, plays football and rugby, athletic guy. But he looked terrible. I'm like, Colton, what's wrong? We began to talk about how the year before he'd been there serving at Fair Havens, had gone back to his rugby football crowd and just engaged in the party life again, doing all kinds of stuff. And he said, here I am, and I just feel like I want to recommit my life to Christ tonight, and this year will be no different than last year. So we began to talk. We talked for about an hour. I prayed over him and showed him how this next year, the one that just passed, could be different than the year before that. And I want to tell you, this last year was amazing. He went back and told all his buddies. I mean, he's a big guy. He's like, I'm not going to party with you anymore. I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to play rugby. I'm going to play football. We can do lots of stuff, but I'm not entering that scene anymore. I want to honor God with my life got really involved with his church, got involved with his youth group, started to become a mentor to some of the young men in his youth group. And then as we began to meet, because he lives in the Hamilton area, I began to talk to him about how he can evangelize others. What does it mean for him to actually be a witness to his friends? What does it mean for him to really think through and dream about how to encourage other people? What does it mean that that becomes our dreams? That our dreams are about the kingdom and about how to encourage other believers and how to witness to the world around us that doesn't know Christ. And as we talked about it, I said to him, how about your parents? I mean, you've grown up in the church. Your parents know and love the Lord. I mean, when do they talk about encouraging other believers? When do they talk about their witness at work or in the neighborhood? And this is what he said. I've never heard them do that. I've never heard them talk about or pray about how they'll encourage another believer. I've, I've never heard them talk about how they'd witness to someone at work. They've never invited anyone over and ever shared the gospel with them, to my knowledge. Oh, they go to church every week. They serve in the church. They, they're in a small group. I mean, that's pretty involved, right? I mean, today, if I could interview your children, what would they say you dream about? What would they say about the kingdom in your life? 
What they say that you're a believer who's really dreams about, I mean, I mean, who cares about the iPad? Who cares about the truck? Who cares about the vacation? Who cares about the boat? Are you someone who's so thankful for the accomplished work of Christ in your life that your life is being spent, being given out to encourage other believers in their walk and to share the love God's given you with the world around us who's dying and going to hell? Don't amen it unless that's how you're living. Awesome. You can amen it all you want then, sister. That's great. But this is how we should live. And if today I could talk to your teenagers or your children, would they say that's how you live? Your adult children, would that say that's the home they were raised in? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, it's where I'll be this morning on your smartphone or your pad or your Bible or whatever, and it'll be behind me on the screen. And then we're going to jump into Luke 16. The eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eyes let everything in. Beauty, desire, wonder. The eyes let everything in. Fear. If I had the chance to take a look at your internet history today, I could look at it for the last two weeks. What would it say that your eyes are letting in? Would your internet history be filled with the gospel? Would your internet history be filled with a whole bunch of Christian missions that you're praying for and supporting? Missionaries whose prayer letters you're reading? Or would your internet history be filled with a whole bunch of stuff you're trying to consume? A whole bunch of stuff you're trying to buy? Would it be filled with all kinds of idle chat and chatter on social media sites that aren't even gospel-centered or just meaningless moments? Would it be filled with pornography men and you lusting over what you don't have and can't have? What would your internet history say your eyes let into your body? Jesus says this. Did you see it? The eye is the lamp of the body. If they're healthy, the whole body's full of light. Is your body full of light? But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body's full of darkness. Are you letting in light or darkness? Are you letting in consumerism? Are you letting in greed? Are you letting in bitterness? Are you letting in pornography? Or are you letting in the kingdom? Look at this. It would be tragic if we spent more time on our devices and smartphones mindlessly playing games searching for purchases or planning our next vacation than we do encouraging other believers and sharing the love of Christ with lost family, friends, and colleagues. Is that not true? Then Jesus says this in Matthew 6, next verse, verse 24. And so no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you can't have two masters. It's either Jesus or consumerism. And we live in a day full of consumerism. And Jesus says we're to serve him. The Bible's really clear. You're to give your first fruits to Jesus, right? The very first of what he's given to you, you give to him. In fact, I believe because the Old Testament's clear that you started a tithe, which is 10%, and then you worked your way up, that when the Bible in the New Testament talks about generosity, that the generous New Testament believer, their starting point is 10%. And you work your way up from there. In fact, I believe if you're not honoring God with at least 10% of your wealth, when he talks about greedy people in Scripture, and if you want a Bible gateway, something great today, just greed in the Bible. And read all the verses. 
that scripture is clear that then we're the people that are robbing God. We're the greedy people that God can't bless. Because we don't honor him with our first fruits. We don't honor him with our wealth. We act as if it's our money and not his. So Jesus says you can't have two masters. You will pick one or the other, but you cannot have both. When money is your master, you will never have enough. It doesn't matter how much you make, you'll have lots of credit debt. Credit is not your income. That might be a revelation to some of you. But credit cards are not part of your income. They're not. In fact, I would go so far as to say that maybe the only debt we should ever have in life is mortgage. Should we buy all these vehicles on debt? Should we make all these purchases of appliances on debt? Should we, and we live in a, in a capitalistic consumeristic culture that says, buy now, pay later. Is that what you see in the Bible? Is that the wisdom of Proverbs? But when money is your master, you never have enough. And so you're always buying on credit. You're always buying on borrow. You're always buying more. You're remortgaging your house so you can consume more and have more. And Number two, some of you are terrified that they invited me today. <laughs> when money is, I'm only, I'm like, I'm eight minutes in. <laughs> when money is your master, you treasure stuff more than people. When money is your master, you treasure stuff more than people. You think of your house as your house instead of a ministry center. Shouldn't your house be a ministry center? Would, would your kids say your house is a ministry center? I mean, is that not your apartment, your house, whatever it is, the greatest thing that God has given you to serve him in? Are you always having people over? Are you always witnessing to those around you? Are you the first one to sign up to host a small group, even if you can't lead one in terms of uh, you don't feel qualified to actually uh, engage in the conversation? But your house is a ministry center. Your stuff should only be seen as tools to further God's kingdom. I mean, God's made everything. God owns everything. God gives everything. Is that not true? Right? And so if that is true, then God's got the greatest rent-a-center going on in the universe. And he loans us with stuff for this life, for his glory and honor and good, not to accumulate, but for his purposes and plans. Number three, when money is your master, you will give, you can give reluctantly, but not with a joy-filled heart. In the book of Corinthians, Paul's really clear that you're to give joyfully and cheerfully. Now, had God said you give a little bit of money with a lot of woohoo, we'd all be fine. But when God says you give generously, you write large checks. You go online to see for and deposit large amounts. You go online and you give away more than you ever thought you could. To Christian mission char- missionaries and charities. Instead of just consuming stuff. You see, when God says that you give generously and cheerfully, that's a work of God's Spirit in our heart. Lastly, some of you are thankful that there's only four of these. When money is your master, you will justify spending in order to rob God. That's greed. Right? You won't tithe. It won't be from your first fruits. God is an afterthought. You'll throw your change in an offering plate, and you'll spend your money on you. In fact, if I could look at your credit card and debit card statements over the last year, what would it say about you? What does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your... Do you believe that? And so God says that how you spend your money is a huge indicator of where your heart is. Tim Keller says this, What you treasure will ultimately require you to die for it. You will do anything for it. 
Jesus is the only treasure that died for you. Amen. And so Jesus came in our lostness, in our rebellion, in our determining we didn't want God. And then our inability to ever get to him because our sin has so separated us from God. God came down. God cloaked his deity with humanity, was born among the animals. I mean, we make the manger scene so incredibly great, right? How many women do you know say, hey, honey, I want the kid to be born in a barn? Like, that would be great. Like, we depict these manger scenes at Christmas like, oh, like, come on. Like, I don't know any woman that's like a barn. That's exactly where I want my kid to be born. I want my kid to be born in a barn. That would be fantastic, Right? God came and he was born in a barn and he was placed in a manger in a stable. It stunk. I mean, throw some dung around your manger scene at Christmas. At least make it look real. Maybe don't do that in your house. Outside, on the front lawn. When the neighbors ask, you can say, well, that's what it was like. It wasn't really that pretty. And put the wise men a little ways away because they show up at the house, not the manger scene. So they, got it. they can't be right there, right? You read your Bibles, right? All right. And then he lives a perfect life. He never sins. At the end of his life, he dies for our sin. In fact, Corinthians tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become righteous. Is that not good news? He becomes my lust. He becomes my consumerism. He becomes my pride. On the cross, he dies for my sin. I like to say it this way. God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross so that God can treat me the way Christ deserves in judgment. God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross. His wrath was poured out on him. He died in my stead so that God can treat me the way Christ deserves in judgment. So like Keller says, what you treasure will ultimately require you to die for it. But God, Jesus is the only treasure that died for you. But most of us are just fine living lukewarm Christian lives. Or we dream about our kitchen renovation and our boat and our car, and we don't think about how to encourage others in the church and how to witness to a world that's going to hell. We just simply don't care. Oh, we hear messages about it, but our lives are never altered because of it. Francis Chan says this, Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Is that not true? Save me from the penalty of my sin and then just, you know, let me keep on doing what I want to do. Just kind of sprinkle some Jesus in my life, but not radically change me. Not call me to some foreign land. Not turn my house into a ministry center. Not see all my stuff as tools to be used for God's kingdom. You know, there's nothing wrong with buying a brand new truck. My brother just brought one, brand new. Just got it on Friday. Drove it last Friday. Drove it up to MVC with his trailer behind it. Put on 300 kilometers before he put the trailer on and thought, well, Lord, hopefully this doesn't blow a tranny. He literally just got it. But here's my brother. He's an elder in his church. You, you know what happens? While we're there during the week, somebody calls him and says, you know, I need a hand, you know, moving, blah, blah, blah. And uh, can I use your truck? And Phil's like, hey, no problem. I just got a new one. He's like, no, I don't want your new truck, man. You got a new truck. What are you talking about? My brother's like, no, it's no problem. It's just a truck. It's just, it's just a truck. Here are the keys. Like, there's not a scratch on this thing. It's literally brand spanking new. There were 700 kilometers on it in, in NBC. It's just a truck. You need it to move? No problem. You need to haul something? That's what it's there for. It's a tool for God's kingdom. Somebody needs a hand? It's just a truck. It's just a truck. 
But most of us want enough of Jesus in our lives that we feel secure in our salvation, but not enough to really transform our lives. Is that not true? And yet God wants to transform our lives utterly and completely. He wants to take us and radically move us. And so this next part of the passage. Therefore I tell you, this is Matthew 6 still, do not worry about your life, what you will wear, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is your life not more important than food and your body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? In fact, if you read the studies, by worrying, you'd actually take away hours from your life. Do you know that one quarter of Canadians say they experience anxiety every day? And you know what the number two things people experience anxiety over are? Number one, everybody ready? Money. Number two, their job, which is their security to money. Is that not fascinating? Stats Canada stuff. Right? Money and their job. Number three is marriage or relationships. Jesus says, you can't add an hour to your life by worrying. In fact, you lose hours. Don't be consumed by what you can't control. Why are you worried about your life? About what you eat or drink or about your body, what you wear? I mean, how many clothes do you try on in a mall? How many malls do you go to until you find what you want? How many times do you return that item because it doesn't look just right? How many times do you wear something once and then discard it because it didn't fit the way you wanted it to? How many of you worry about what you wear? And why do you worry, verse 28, about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, it's thrown into the fire, actually. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus says, why are you so concerned about the things of this world, about this kingdom? About what you wear, or what you drive, or what your house looks like? That's not to say that you let your house fall apart. We have to invest in our house every year. In a couple of years, I'll have to do the roof. Saving up to do it. I'm downtown, two and a half stories. It's got a steep peak. It's probably going to cost me eight or 10000 to do this crazy roof, right? Because of the pitch and steepness, and we've got to replace the plywood this time. It's old, old roof. I mean, maybe they won't have to, but it's only barn board under there. I did the roof myself with my friends and family uh, 16 years ago when we bought the house. This time we'll hire it out because I'm older and it's steep, and it probably isn't steeper than it was when I was in my 20s, but it feels that way. Um... <laughs> My dad's now 70. He's like, just so you know, I'll pay for it myself. I have to have no desire to go up on that roof again, right? When my dad was in his 50s, we got there to roof the roof, and my dad's got the scaffolding somehow two and a half stories up by himself, and he's up there, and my brother and others are like, and dad's like, hey, guys. I'm like, dad, what are you doing? He's like, getting ready. I'm like, dad, how'd you get the scaffolding up there yourself? He's like, actually, it was a little harder than I thought, but it's here, right? And so you save up to do it. You don't just charge it to some line of credit. It's not going to surprise me that I have to do my roof. Oh, I need to do my roof. I didn't know that was coming every 20 years. Right? Unexpected expense. Come on. Like, honestly, what's wrong with us? They didn't tell you how honest I am. 
And so what does God say? Why are you worried about all these things? Proverbs is clear. Be wise. Save up. Talks about saving up for a retirement and making sure there's an inheritance for your children. I'm never going to put a sticker on my car that says I'm spending my kids' inheritance. Lord willing, there'll be something for them. Because that's what the Word of God says. But after I've been generous to the Lord, after we've given to Christian missionaries, after we've cared for the poor and the marginalized, David Platt says this, we are settling for Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is about abandoning ourselves. Is that not great? And so our greatest fear, Francis Chan says, should not be a failure, but at succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Oh, you've become great at your hobby. Oh, you're an expert at work. Oh, everybody wants you in whatever position it is. Oh, you're amazing at this, whatever it would be, and you should be amazing at something. My wife and I have opened up a storefront on James Street in November. My wife is incredibly handy and crafty, and so she wanted to open up a shop to express that. And so I can't comprehend how well the shop is going. We We've put tens of thousands of this thing, and we'll be able to pay back our full investment this year she's done so well. She repurposes furniture. She makes stuff, and she sells it, and it just sells. It just sells. Like, it's been amazing. I I can't believe how God's blessed her. He really has. It's not that you can't be good at something, but that's not our priority. Tonight, one of the couples in our church who's dying with cancer, 26-year-old woman, she's struggling, let's say it that way, with cancer. But the cancer is back. A couple of major surgery. Julia Bear, you may have read her blog, over 100,000 people in the country has. Took out so many parts of her body, she can't go through chemotherapy or radiation treatment anymore. Beautiful, wonderful, godly couple. They're coming over for dinner. Because our life isn't about a shop, it's about ministry. Through the shop, we've been able to minister. I'm across the street getting dinner. There I am, having or getting dinner for our family because our lives have changed a bit with Amy working full-time at a business. And, and so there I am getting it, and I'm talking to Mark, who's the owner of the business, who has this great chicken place across the street, charred. I'm getting the poutine and, and the Caesar salad and blah, blah, blah. And as we're there, I'm talking to him, and 20 minutes goes by, and I just look at Mark as we have this gospel-centered conversation. He knows I'm a pastor. He knows I own the place across the street with my wife. And I say, Mark, can I pray for you, man? And all of a sudden, like 20 employees, busy place, the restaurant's packed, people waiting in line. He says, everybody stop. The priest is going to pray. Right? Because your life is about ministry. Your life is about abandoning stuff. It's not that you can't own a business. It's not that you can't be great at what you do. But you're great at what you do to the glory of God so that at work you can be a witness to share that it's God who's enabled you. It's by His strength that you're able to do this. You're great at what you do so you can declare His praise to the world around us. You're great at what you do so you can encourage other believers in their faith and knowledge of the Lord. That's the kingdom. And it's great that you become great at something. But our Our greatest fear should be not a failure, but of succeeding at things that don't really matter. I love that quote. So then Jesus says this in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And so seek first his kingdom. First, just a deep relationship with God where he's ministering to your spirit and soul, where you're growing in your faith and knowledge of him, and then where you're encouraging other believers, where you're walking alongside of them. And then lastly, where you're witnessing to the world around you. And don't worry about tomorrow, Jesus says. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
And so as Jesus here was talking about worry and predominantly about money, I want to then take you for a few minutes to Luke 16, where Jesus tells this amazing parable of a rich man. His manager has been wasting his possessions. So he calls the manager into account. He says, I want you to come and I want you to tell me what's going on. And the manager, the rich man lets the manager know that he's done. He probably gives him two weeks notice. So the rich, uh, the rich man's manager, the manager says, what will I do now? I, I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm not strong enough to dig. I know what I'll do. So he calls in his master's debtor. The first one owns 900 gallons of olive oil. He says, mark it down to 400. Whew, could you imagine? But he has the authority to do that. Next one owns 1,000 bushels, owes 1,000 bushels of wheat. Says, mark it down to 800. When the manager, the owner, sorry, hears that the manager did this, the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus says this, For the people of this world are more shrewd dealing with each other than are the people of light. Jesus doesn't commend him for his dishonesty. He doesn't say, oh, he was dishonest, that's good. He commends him for his shrewdness, and then he says we should be the same. We should be the same. Look at this, verse 9 of Luke 16, part of the parable. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Is that not great? Use your worldly wealth in such a way so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I told them to leave the care fund out this morning because I think maybe there's a few more people in here that need to put a bit more in as God speaks to you today. That's between you and the Lord. I don't want you to just give out a guilt. But as they were collecting them, I'm like, no, don't take these away. This is a great response to a message this morning. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so when it's gone, you will be welcomed into heaven. Do you know that 55% of my neighborhood, the children in my neighborhood, lives below the poverty line? 55% of the children. Do you know that in my neighborhood, 38% of the people live below the poverty line? Of all the homes. Do you know that if you are born in my neighborhood and not in Waterdown where Dave used to pastor, that your life expectancy is 21 years less? In my neighborhood, you will live to 65. In Waterdown, you will live to 86. 21 years less being born in a different neighborhood 20 minutes apart. Does that seem just? And Jesus says, use your worldly wealth in such a way that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And so every Christmas, we provide Christmas hampers for families. We actually go out and 300 families, it costs us like 30 grand. We need a bunch of outside donors like yourselves to to help us with stuff like that. We do some of it, we need help. We we run a soccer league in the summer, and and in the summertime, as we run this soccer league, we have 300 kids that participate. We need a bunch of the kids sponsored. That's what we do. We run a day camp for five weeks in the summer. Cross trainers, most of whom would never have the opportunity to go to any day camp. A whole bunch of them we take up to camp with Jitawin. Up north, the camp pays for part of it. We pay for part of it. But we need a sponsor to do that. Listen. In all of that, we share the gospel. Because we are not just a social agency. We are not just some other group. We are the church God's people. So at soccer, we have the privilege of sharing the gospel every week. We have a whole bunch of Muslim kids that want to play. Their parents wouldn't let them sit through the devotionals. So here's what we do. I said to the Muslim parents, what if your kids all sat with me, all 60 of them, and they try to convert me to the Muslim faith? And they said, well, that's fair. So I'm like, perfect. 
So the kids sit with me. They tell me what they believe. And I say, you believe that about God? This is what I believe about God. They're like, oh, you believe that about the Bible? This is what I believe about the Bible. You believe that about Jesus? This is what I believe about the Jesus. Now the parents sit with the kids and all listen to me, evangelize them because they're trying to evangelize me. What a great God. Because he's able to do that. At Christmas, after we hand out all the Christmas papers, in early January, we call all the families and say, would you like to be in a Bible study with us? We use Christianity Explored or Introducing God. They're the two we prefer. Alpha's also great. And the new Alpha I've heard is amazing. And so we then invite people to come. Forty-some-odd people came this year. When we hand out food and clothes every Friday, we have people there to pray with them. They sit around tables. They don't just line up and and we play Scrabble with them, and people make puzzles and some crochet, and partway through the morning, we share the gospel. We just take a few minutes and share the hope we have in Christ because we are the church, and unashamedly, we are God's people declaring his praise to the world around us, including those that are marginalized and poor, to win friends who will one day welcome us into heaven. I know you do that here at C4 Church. I was talking to Dave, and he says, through much of the benevolent, there's opportunity for conversation and opportunity for people to sit down with people and pray and to invest in their lives. And so it's a great investment when you help with that here. As our neighborhood's gentrifying and things around us are changing, we are about to build a new building downtown. And in building the new building downtown, we are about to have a a great facility and worship center and all these programs that we run for the marginalized. We see over 500 families a week who are marginalized in our neighborhood who don't come to church on Sunday mornings. But as we are about to get the permits in March, our church stopped and said, we're not going to do it. Not the way we thought. And we voted to put 40 units of supportive subsidized housing in the building that's taken the price take from 7.8 million to 15.3 million. God's provided 4.5 million so far. The government's going to kick in 6.3, so there's 4.5 left to go. And we're believing the church, God's people, can help with that remaining 4.5 million. And we believe them. We're going to have 40 apartments in this building, in our church. You can talk about all the complexities of lice and bed bugs, people with mental health issues, people struggling with addictions, people with diabetes. We're going to offer care. We're working with a Christian housing provider. And we're going to do this because we think this is what the church should be doing, simply because we think this is right. And we're going to house 40 people that are struggling and need supports on a variety of levels. And I'll tell you what happens, and I mean this, and not to our credit, but the city and the province and now beyond are calling us and saying, what kind of people would take the money they have and spend it on another? And I tell you who they are. They are God's people. They are the people transformed by the power of God who says, the consumeristic day no longer has its grip on me because the cross of Christ has freed me from its grip. And then Jesus tells us to use our worldly wealth in such a way that when it's gone, we're welcomed into heaven this $20 bill could speak, what would it say? Maybe it was for this $20 bill and just a few more that a drug dealer knifed someone in Hamilton last night to get some money. That happened. Maybe it was for this $20 bill and just a few more that a guy went down to some strip club to be with some women even though he's married. What if this $20 bill could speak and say it was for this $20 bill and just a few more that people all around C4 Church were cared for through the care fund? What if they could tell you that it was for this $20 bill and just a few more that kids in Hamilton were sponsored to camp? What if it was for this $20 bill and just a few more that friends of ours were sent 
to close countries where the gospel would be proclaimed in ways that the lost world would hear of the glory of Jesus Christ. What it was for this $20 bill and just a few more, that our house was a ministry center and our stuff were tools to build God's kingdom and God used this to make friends so that one day we'd be welcomed into heaven. You know we'll all be judged, right? We'll all be judged. The Bible's really clear on that. God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross so that God would treat me the way Christ deserves in judgment. So we'll all stand before God in judgment. I don't have time to go through all those verses. And on that judgment day, we will understand the holiness of God. We will understand our unworthiness. And on that judgment day, we will be condemned. We will be found guilty. God will declare me guilty. I am not innocent. I am guilty of my sin. Is that not true? But on that day, I will be pardoned. On that day, though I be found guilty of my sin, I will be pardoned because of the accomplished work of Christ and his shed blood. I won't be found innocent because I am not innocent. I will be guilty before God on that judgment day. But the accomplished work of Christ and his shed blood, his goodness, not mine, is enough to call me pardoned. I will be welcomed into eternity with him forever. Not because of me, but because of him. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. Not because of my work, but because of his work. Not because of anything in me, but because everything in him. And on that day when I'm pardoned, though I be guilty before him in my sin, on that day when I'm pardoned, I'm praying I then have friends who welcome me into heaven. I was a kid in Afghanistan whose missionaries you sponsored who shared the gospel with me. You've never met me, but with a few of those $20 bills that allowed me to hear the gospel. I was that person in Hamilton that lived in that housing that that church built. You've never met me, but it was because of a $20 bill like this and a few more that I was able to be housed instead of living on the streets and the gospel was shared with me. It was for a $20 bill just like this and a few more that some people at C4 Church were able to care for me. And though you never met me because the church is large and I never met you, I want you to know that after a year of me coming for help for the church, God saved me and I was there worshiping beside you. And I never knew it was your money that went into the care fund. It was for a few $20 bills and these just like it that people in heaven will be there to welcome you into eternal dwellings because you're shrewd with what God's given you and not caught up in the consumeristic world. David Platt says this about the judgment day. We will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacation, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, we will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, every tribe, every people, every language will bow around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. Is that not a great quote? So Jesus says this in Luke 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little, that's money. He called money very little earlier. Can also be trusted with much. That's people. Jesus says, if I can't trust you with money, why would I ever trust you with people? Why would I ever let you really invest in the kingdom with lives if I can't trust you with stuff? So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, that's very little. Who will trust you with true riches? That's people. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who would ever give you property of your own? You see, God wants us to see the money he's given us to be used shrewdly by him as a resource to turn our homes into ministry centers, 
our stuff into tools for the kingdom of God and our money to win friends who will welcome us into heaven. God knows, Keller says, that the reason people aren't generous is that they are afraid. They say, I need a lot of savings, but God is saying that's distrust. You're looking to money to give you a feeling of confidence that I should be giving you. Also then in Luke 16, Jesus closes with this. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people highly value is detestable in God's sight. Are you sneering this morning? Are you sneering? Are you there trying to justify why you spend what you spend? Why you have so much debt? Are you there trying to justify in your hearts why you can't give more to the kingdom? Jesus says to the Pharisees, if that's you, you're in the wrong place. And this morning he's calling you a Pharisee. I mean, if you're sitting here this morning and you've been generous your whole life because God's made you that way or generous the last year or generous the last two years, then all you do is listen to this and say, praise God and thank you for that bold preacher up there who won't be asked back. (laughs) And if you're convicted this morning and God's working in your heart, you say, God changed my life. Right? That's some of you this morning. But if you're sitting here today sneering, then God says there's a problem right here. Don't you love that God leaves stuff like this in his word that just kind of bang right at us? And so I close with this longer quote from Francis Chan in one story. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra, it is easy and safe to give. They do so. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Lukewarm people think about life on earth more than eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, and next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intently consider the life to come. Lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor. Would you this week consider how you give as much as possible to the poor through their care fund? through other ministries here at C4 Church, maybe through our church. I've got a display in the foyer with all kinds of information. You'll see the display's wrong. If you read the sheet inside, it says 13 million. I got the final figures last year for this, last week, sorry, for the new building. That's 15.3 million. I nearly, I nearly fell over when I saw it. And then I said, Lord, what do we do? And I got an email from our elders board chair who said, this is crazy, but God's going to do it. 4.5 million left. God's going to do it. I dream of a day, I don't know if you've ever been audited by the government. I have for your charity giving. I dream of the day when every Christian across our land is audited for their giving. Because the government has a formula, right? If, if you give this much and you make this much, they just audit you and you got to send everything. I've sent it in, I don't know. I've sent this stuff in like 12 or 14 years. I'm like, pick on someone who makes a lot more money. Come on, man. But I dream of the day when so many Christians are so generous with their wealth that all of us are audited and audited to the point where all the government can hear at the other end of the phone is, why do you choose to live this way? This doesn't make sense. And our response is the gospel doesn't make sense until Christ has invaded your life. And as he changes your life and changes your perspective and changes your mind and transforms you, you realize that we don't need to be slaves to this world. We instead are victors in Christ. And it changes everything. That my God died on my behalf 
on the cross. And in his dying on my behalf on the cross, he frees me so that I can live in a way that the world says, I don't know what's wrong with you. And as part of our witness, we tell them nothing's wrong. In fact, everything's right. And the right has a name, and his name is Jesus. And he is the Christ, and he changes us. And so quickly, I think of Bill. Man, it was a mess. Mental health issues. Bill struggled on so many levels. I mean, one time he's at our Christmas dinner where a whole bunch of non-Christians are, like, over half the room, and he's pouring all these alcoholics alcohol. And, whoo, confiscated the alcohol. He had more confiscated again. And I said, Bill, here's some food. You can't stay tonight. Bill's like, I've never been kicked out of church. I'm like, well, welcome to Houston Street Baptist. Now you're kicked out. And we loved on Bill and cared for Bill. The week before Bill died, he wrote me this letter. Thanks for being a great pastor in a great church. Thanks for the care you offer us. I don't have time to quote it all. I'm praying for your message this Sunday because God has used this church to change my life. I saw him that Sunday. It was Easter Sunday. I said, Bill, do you even remember writing this? He's like, of course I do. He said, God's really used this church in my life and I'm praying for you this morning. And that week in all of his mental fog and all of his difficulty and all of his illness, Bill passed away and entered the presence of Jesus. And I can't wait to have him welcome me into glory. Oh, may your house be a ministry center. May your stuff be tools to be used to build God's kingdom. May your money be used of him in such a way that when it is gone, there will be people to welcome you into glory. Let me pray. God in heaven, we come before you today in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, the life. And even after we know you, we get our lives all mixed up. God, forgive us for mixing our lives up. We come to a table this morning where we celebrate communion and celebrate that you came to put our lives in order. And so, God, today as we take a piece of bread and a cup and we remember you, would you take our lives and allow them to be yours in such a way that we'd always be thinking about how to glorify you by encouraging other believers witnessing to friends and family, neighbors and colleagues, and caring for the neglected of our community, country, and world, the poor. Oh, God, change our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.